You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Today, we're happy to welcome Dr. Susie Miltner, Associate Professor and Director for the Educational Focus Par Partnerships at UAB School of Nursing. Welcome, Dr. Miltner. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm happy to be here to talk about my favorite topic. <laughs> Excellent. I'm I'm, we're excited to hear about it. So before we dive too deep into quality and quality improvement topics, what is quality? So that's a really good question. Um, have you given that a thought, what you think quality is? Uh, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a difficult thing to think about because quality is in the eyes of the beholder. So every one of us who are working in healthcare, either as providers or we're recipients of healthcare as patients, we all have different ideas about what quality is. So in 1990, the Institute of Medicine made an attempt <laughs> to define uh, what quality is, and it still withheld the, withstands the test of time. And so their definition is it's the degree to which to which healthcare services for individuals and populations increase the likelihood of desired health outcomes and are consistent with current professional knowledge. And um, this is a really good and powerful definition of quality because it assumes a few things. Number one is that we're trying to get desired health outcomes, but we can't optimize health outcomes for all people. You know, inevitably all of us are going to die, et cetera, but we have to do the best we can for individual patients and for patient populations. And the last line of that definition is related that we have um, current professional knowledge. So this implies that all of us as healthcare providers need to be lifelong learners and we're always moving um, things forward. We're doing the current evidence and we're doing the best we can with that. So how do we tie, tie safety? Oftentimes we hear quality and safety. How do you tie safety into that uh, belief? So in the United States, most people would say that safety is a component of quality. So in 2001, the Institute of Medicine uh, issued a report on uh, crossing the quality chasm, which it essentially said the whole care healthcare system needs to be blown up and started over because it's such a mess. But obviously, we can't do that. And so they did call for system redesign. And to redesign that system, they um, said that there are six aims for quality. And those aims are, um, we sometimes refer to them as steep, but that they are safe, that um, healthcare quality, healthcare is timely, it's effective, it's efficient, it's equitable, and also it's patient-centered. And so um, that's how safety is usually tied in underneath the uh, overall quality umbrella. So at what point and what was the movement to include quality and safety in things that we do within the healthcare system beyond just a hospital or hospital system, but clinics and outpatient, all the different entities that involve patients? At what point and how do we migrate over to that being the center point? It was very interesting. So I'm an old nurse, and so I got my start in the early 80s in nursing. And at that time, you know, we were um, trained uh, and were educated to try to provide the best and safest care that we could. But we just automatically made the assumption that bad things were going to happen to people in healthcare, patients. Um, so it's very unfortunate, but if people are sick enough to be in the hospital, unfortunately, if they have to be on a ventilator, they're going to get pneumonia. If they have to have a central line, they'll probably have a risk of getting sepsis. And it was sad and it was unfortunate, and we thought that way, but we said, well, you know, there's certain risk. But all of a sudden, in 1999, the Institute of Medicine issued the report to Air as Human. 
they took a couple of studies that risk management companies had done, and they extrapolated that 48,000 to 44,000 to 98,000 people a year died from medical error. And this was like a shock throughout the system. That's because, an astounding number. Yes, all of a sudden it's, it's amazing, like, oh my God, how, how, how come we have that many deaths? And, you know, people started being really shocked by that. That's a, essentially like a big jumbo jet crashing every single day. And, and I don't know about you, but if a jet crashed every day, I would never fly again, you know, because we would be fearful. But because these deaths are hidden, you know, one in this hospital, one in that hospital, maybe one a week or something, you know, it's not like a, a, a catastrophic loss in which you have 100 patients die at one time. At least it generally isn't. Um, and so um, that woke up the system, and it said it's no longer acceptable for us to just say that's okay. Uh, we have to move forward. We have to do things to try to make this much safer and of much higher quality. Now, the interesting point of this uh, point that I'd like to make is that in 2013, uh, a virologist named John James, who lost a son due to medical error, took four studies, recent studies, um, and he did the same extrapolation that the Institute of Medicine um, report did. And he found that it's probably closer to 210,000 to 400,000 people a year who are dying prematurely due to medical error. So how do we measure quality within the healthcare system? So if we're, if we're going to address the overwhelming quality issues or based on these uh, large reports, these large uh, sets of data, how do we measure items to be able to have some sort of movement and a plan? So it's really complicated as, as our health system is. Um, generally, we're tracking outcomes, and there are six main categories of outcomes, which we like to refer to as the six Ds. So there's disease and disability, which are clinical outcomes. There is, uh, uh, I'm sorry, disease and death. And then there's disability, discomfort, and dissatisfaction, which are patient-related outcomes. And then dollars, which are the economic outcomes. Um, in point of fact, uh, a healthcare organization often has hundreds, if not a thousand metrics that they're having to track for internal and external use. And so there are many, many of those that are being tracked. Um, but if you wanted to think about it on a national scale, the most important ones that we are probably benchmarking against are the ones that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid are um, re requiring us to report on. So. Are all healthcare systems and entities who see patients required to report to the same CMS? Everyone is required if they want um, accreditation. So how do we track this? How do we get granular down to the tracking of the specific outcome? In point of fact, it takes, it takes a village to make that happen. So let's just take uh, mortality is probably relatively one of the easiest things for healthcare systems to manage. So um, those, you know, those data are reported up um, through insurance data files and other files. Um, but remember, some patients die at home, so they also have to combine um, 
you know, vital statistic data from the states, et cetera. So that's one, just one metric, just mortality. Infant mortality is the same story. They're tracking that generally from vital uh, statistics records in states, et cetera. Um, when you're talking about um, process measures for uh, door to balloon time for patients who come in uh, with an AMI, they may have a, um, you know, they, they'll oftentimes uh, healthcare systems will hire outside companies to come in and abstract that data from the healthcare record. So this has become quite an industry to try to keep up with the quality measurement. And do, it's quite a burden for health systems. Sure. And do most places, uh, clinics, health healthcare systems and so forth, do they have quality champions, quality and safety champions who guide this process or is it the expectation of everyone within the building or both? So it should be ideally both, but in most um, organized clinics, larger clinics, and definitely um, hospitals, acute care, and nursing home facilities or systems, they do have people that are specialized in quality and safety and that are doing the bulk of this work. But in reality, quality and quality improvement and safety are the, are, are the role of every single person who's working within the health system. So how do you motivate such a large employee base, nursing, physicians, all the different clinical entities, how do you get them on the right path with quality? I think this is really a, a personal thing for all of us who are in healthcare, particularly if you're on the front line providing care. I remember my very first medication error. I was uh, just out of nursing school. I was in orientation, I had a graduate nursing license, this was in the old days, so I didn't have my RN uh, license yet. Uh, I was waiting for those results, and I gave a Sudafed to the wrong patient. Now, it didn't hurt anything, but I was devastated when I went back to record it and I realized that I had given it to the wrong patient. I had to call the physician, I'm still on orientation, my preceptor is almost holding my hand through this. <laughs> And I just felt like the stupidest person in the whole world. And I felt so bad about it that um, when I went home that day, I was checking the mail, and in the mail was my nursing license. And so I was like, oh my God, I'm just like a fraud here. I have my nursing license, but I made a med error today. And I remember calling my mom, who was an old diploma nurse, and she said, Susie, anyone who tells you they haven't made an error is either lying or they're not practicing nursing. And so I think when we touch every provider, because we've all made an error, we've all caused harm to a patient inadvertently, that that personal motivation to want to do better is a great um, motivator to get people involved in quality and safety. Are there a set of universal benchmarks, or we're still, we're still in the early stages of really adapting this across the board, some benchmarks that we can use uh, as a goalpost for us, meaning that as clinicians or providers, uh, whether it be a small hospital, whether it be a large healthcare uh, system, some benchmarks for all of the different measures that we have uh, that we report on. So I want to move it beyond the measures that we report on because that's generally an organizational thing that happens and, and put this back down to the benchmarks for what the expectation for healthcare professionals are. And it is an expectation now um, for, for all healthcare professions, students, to gain some basic competencies in quality, safety, teamwork, evidence-based practice, and patient-centered care. 
And so in nursing, that, um, those competencies come out of the CUSIN initiative, which was the Quality, Safety, and Education in Nursing um, program that was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation starting in 2005. Um, now, those same competencies are now being embedded in the new revisions of the AACN essentials for all nursing education, both pre-licensure and graduate level competencies, which is really exciting because we are really, have been a little bit behind our medical counterparts, uh, counterparts because they've been doing this, um, had these competencies embedded in their expectations for medical education and for um, graduate medical education for some years. So it's very exciting to see the health professions all thinking that these are such important skills that people know how to do a basic quality improvement project, that they know about the value of reporting errors, that we're starting to really firmly embed these in our education as well as in the work you expectations. Talked to, you provided us uh, earlier with an example of a medication error, which, like as you said, clinicians, especially the practice for many years, uh, or even at any point, uh, will have some sort of errors. So how do hospitals use, or, or healthcare systems for that matter, use those op as opportunities versus retribution? Because you know just as well as I do, that number is, and there's data to show that it's mostly underreported in some cases. Not all errors are reported, which is a scary thing for someone who's educating the next generation of nurses, plus also caring for patients or leading others to empower the change of quality and safety. So how, how do hospitals use that data? How do hospitals use it truly as a movement in the right direction? The, some of the most valuable data that an organization can have is incident reporting about errors or almost errors. Can you tell misses. us about instant, incident reporting? So that's when the staff involved in some situation that went awry or almost went awry, there's some kind of formal mechanism for them to document that and report that to the healthcare system. So okay. people will call them incident reports or error reports. There's different names that um, trend trackers. That people will have different names for that uh, process that they have in their organization. And um, what you're talking about is really about a just culture. And in that culture, in that for the organization, they know that um, they know that they have to provide psychological safety for the people who work there, so they freely can come forward and say, "I made an error," or "I almost made an error." And this is really important um, to build a, that climate where you have psychological safety and that you learn so the organization can learn from the mistakes that happened or almost happened and, um, and also to put uh, support around the people who made the error because sometimes those errors can be pretty devastating to the people who make them especially if a patient death is involved. And so all of that has to be part of the organization. Do most organizations have that yet? No, they don't. They're still too much into the blame. Let's see what individual uh, did wrong. Um, how can we point the finger at them? You know, it can't possibly be the system because we're the best hospital in the country or whatever. Um, but we have a lot of work to do around that just culture. But when you're in a culture, I had the opportunity once to work in a place like that. The incident reports were hundreds and hundreds a month. We, every one of them was reviewed. They got reported back to staff and to the, um, obviously, you know, 
the leadership of the organization too, but also to the staff. They took information out of those uh, incident reports and moved forward to improve processes. And it was really a good feeling that you weren't ashamed or embarrassed to be able to report when something went wrong. So I want to talk about how we compare, how can we compare with other countries. But before we do that, let's talk about money, mm -hmm. financial impact. So let's talk about quality and safety, the initiatives that are going across, really a movement towards equality and safety as a, mm -hmm. as a main focus in education and in healthcare. How does it impact us financially? Not just the mechanics of moving that direction, but also the errors. So you probably are aware that healthcare is a business, and in this country, um, healthcare takes up 18 plus percent of the gross domestic product. So essentially, one in five dollars that are passed around in the United States is healthcare related. So that's huge, right? So how do you incentivize such a huge industry to do the right thing? And so for years, we were incentivized to make more money. So we would have extra procedures, we would do more stuff. If bad things happened to patients, oh good, that's more billing we could do. If we gave them a pressure ulcer or they got an infection, we would get more money for, you know, for having to provide care to fix that. Um, and so the federal government came down, CMS came down, and they began uh, a process called value-based purchasing. But one of the elements of that is they no longer pay us when we make an error. So if a patient uh, acquires a pressure injury on our watch, they don't pay for that. Now they'll pay for the initial hospitalization and the main reason, but we we'll, won't get extra funds to pay for the mistake we made. When CMS came down with that for Medicare patients, then essentially it goes through the whole system, you know, private insurers adopt the same kind of mechanisms, et cetera. So healthcare is no healthcare organizations are really being held to some financial incentives and disincentives to provide better and higher quality care. So you, you gave us a great example with pressure ulcers mm -hmm. and pressure sores and so forth. Do you have other examples? Uh, I've read some things about uh, discharge from uh, discharge from the hospital, readmission rates, and so forth. Do you have other examples? Yes, yes. So all of those things are being disincentivized. We want to get better at that. So readmissions is a complicated issue, right? Um, if you're in an organization, being readmitted to the hospital 30 days later, an unplanned readmission is generally seen as, okay, what was the gap? What did we do? Um, and so typically a healthcare organization to reduce the number of those readmissions, you can't fix every one of them. There's going to be some inevitable, but you might take a target population like patients with congestive heart failure who are typically rebounding a lot and put a little more safeguards on them at the other end upon discharge. So making sure they get into their primary care provider within seven days, maybe some follow-up calls, making sure they have the exact things they need in their house like scales and other things so that they can successfully uh, continue their recovery and not be back in the hospital. So um, people are doing that and there's big populations we can address and then sometimes there's little populations of um, that sometimes we have to wait to do those just because there's only so much time and ability to do things in the system. So earlier you mentioned QSIN mm -hmm. and you talked about what that is, quality, safety, education, and nursing. So can we spend a little bit more time on QSIN, some elements of QSIN? Because what I'd like to do is go into a conversation about um, how 
uh, you can educate the next generation or how you can get nurses, uh, give them some tools. Okay. So CUSIN actually started um, at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, but part of the origins were that they had done a project called Transforming Care at the Bedside. And it was about um, embedding quality improvement techniques and tools into med surge units so nurses could feel empowered to improve their workplace. When that project went on, and there's tons of articles out there you can read about TCAB, uh, Transforming Care at the Bedside. But what they found when they did that project and they funded that project is essentially nurses had no quality improvement skills. And so they were kind of appalled by that. And so Linda Cronenwet approached them and talked about this idea she had about embedding quality and safety into nursing education. And they were like, yes, please come on board because there is obviously a gap you know, from practitioners. They just don't know this. And so um, over a series of funding opportunities, they built, um, developed and built out competencies um, uh, with specific knowledge, skills, and uh, attitude behaviors that are expected. They leveled them for undergraduate work and for graduate work. Um, and then the group has been, ever since, trying to preach the gospel of CUSIN around to all our colleagues in um, academic settings, um, both in uh, four-year colleges, ADN programs, et cetera. And how do we embed those six competencies um, that CUSIN has in our coursework and in our activities in, um, in our schools of nursing? In addition, over about the last five to six years, we've also been moving CUSIN into practice. So now these same competencies are appearing in um, nurses' job descriptions um, at a hospital or places like that. They're being uh, um, embedded in performance management systems. And so there's a whole big move to this. So, you know, it's been a voluntary organization that stand, stood alone and trying to really push, push, push. And there's some competencies that we do better with than others. So, for example, the safety competency is one that nursing's always been pretty safe at, uh, pretty successful at and um, really emphasized a lot. Um, that's been some of our core work in nursing education is around safe practices. Um, but some of the things that we've done poorly at is quality improvement. Evidence-based practice still confuses a lot of folks. And then um, informatics is also another one that's always been a challenge to implement. But I mentioned earlier, it really is good news that essentially through all those decade plus amount of work that people have done around these competencies, now that they're really getting embedded in the new AACN competency model, we're so excited about that. Um, and the CUSIN Institute and CUSIN organizations, we're beginning to refocus and think how we're going to fit in now that AACN has going to essentially grabbed them and hugged them and incorporated them. Um, and so we have a lot of knowledge and expertise about how to embed those things. So uh, we will still be able to do um, a lot of work with schools of nursing and with practice folks who want to figure out how do I use, what kind of teaching strategies do I need to embed these? What, you know, how do I measure my outcomes? How can I evaluate this? For other countries, do they use the same sort of uh, formatting with QCIN or they have their own uh, sort of set of competencies. How 
How do we compare with other countries when it comes to this movement for quality and safety? Uh, for nursing, we are definitely at the top internationally. So there are there are people in other countries who are sometimes using some of the QCIN, um competencies and work, but that is very um, on a small level at this point in time. So um, so that that's something that we do lead the way in. Okay, excellent. I want to get to a question from our viewers. What drawbacks are there currently as healthcare infrastructure evolves away from the volume-based system into a system that incentivizes patient outcomes? Well, I, that's a great question. Um, incentivizing patient outcomes is a fabulous idea. We really want that to happen, right? Um, and so can you imagine a healthcare system where everybody gets the optimal services they need and that they're in the best health they can be, that they choose to be in? Um, and wouldn't that be awesome? But here's the problem, and here's the dirty little secret in healthcare quality. So remember I told you healthcare dollars is 18% of the GDP. If we got better and focused on patient outcomes and they, we were optimizing those patient outcomes, people are going to lose money. So there's going to be fewer patients in the hospital. There's going to be fewer surgeries. There's going to be few, may, maybe fewer, you know, lower drug utilization, et cetera. So someone's going to lose out on that. And this is the tension that's in the system right now between how we really improve the, ten, uh, the, the system and how we increase that quality and safety when people, somebody, is going to lose money out of that. So we spend a lot of time talking about quality and safety. We talk about how it can be embedded within educational or healthcare settings and so forth. If someone wanted to learn more, uh, what resources are available for people to learn more about this? So the Institute for Healthcare Improvement is a nonprofit organization out of Massachusetts that started decades ago specifically to help healthcare professionals learn about quality improvement. So it is an excellent resource. And for people who have, uh, who are students and faculty who are in schools, uh, any kind of school, there are many, many free resources. Unfortunately, if you're a staff nurse in an organization, some of those resources are not available for free. To keep it running, IHI does charge companies um, fees for their services so that they can make it available for free for um, students. But one of the best resources for learning about quality improvement and patient safety is the IHI Open School. And it's a series of a couple of dozen um, you know, on online courses you can earn CE from, and it goes step by step um, through different aspects of quality improvement and patient safety, teaching you tools. Uh, they, it's actually a very well done um, online course set of courses. Um, you can't get past it. It's not like where you can scroll through the the PowerPoint slides and then take the test at the end and win. No. Won't, won't work that way. You actually have to stop and do things to make it move forward. So they got it structurally. It's um, very nicely done. So for healthcare facilities, because we've all we we know this is true in many different uh, communities throughout the United States. Uh, some hospitals struggle. Some healthcare systems struggle. Uh, some have closed their doors. So with dwindling resources, with dwindling revenue at some of these facilities or reimbursement at uh, some of these facilities, how what? What can hospitals or healthcare systems do to improve their quality, to improve their patient population, to be more of a draw for those communities? Because some will drive right past certain facilities 
to go further distance to other hospitals. How can you have those smaller, small resourced uh, facilities get on the uh, quality and safety bandwagon? So this is up to the community and the political community. You know, the reality is those rural resources and those smaller um, hospitals are always going to struggle until there's appropriate financial subsidy of that. Um, in the states that have had that have done the Medicaid expansion, it is slowed and eliminated in some states that rural hospital loss. I think in Alabama we've lost 11 hospitals since the ACA went into effect, uh, and we did not do the Medicaid expansion. So, so that's a societal thing that has and a political thing that has to be determined. There has to be money. Those small hospitals will never be profitable, but just because there's not the volumes to do. They generally don't um, have surgical services or very limited surgical services, which is where bigger hospitals get a lot of their, you know, extra profit margin comes from. Um, and so they're always going to struggle. Is it worth it to us in our state to have those rural hospitals still functioning? I, I think so, just because people need basic primary and secondary care, right? No, access, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that alone should be worth it because it helps decrease the, you know, the burden on those bigger places or the ones that uh, work. So that's one thing. But for, if you're in a small place, it's really hard because you're doing multiple jobs if you're in a leadership role there to try to juggle all the quality requirements, et cetera. And so, again, it goes back to every single person's job is to pay attention to quality and safety. So maybe you disperse some of that workload among, you know, other people in the organization, even staff. You know, maybe they can do some of that work. Um, and also build partnerships with larger places so that they can help you. Frankly, they'll be glad to have the partnerships. <laughs> um, um, so those, those are the kinds of things that could help those places. This has been an amazing conversation. During our last minute together, any final takeaways? Um, like I said, I'm really passionate about this topic and um, it is really important. Each of us knows our family member or friend that's been in the hospital or had some serious illness recently and they've told us a story about a mistake that's happened or something that went wrong. This is not something that just happens rarely. It is a common event. If you're going to be in the healthcare system, the chances of you come almost having an error or having an error are high. So it's up to every one of us. As uh, Paul Batalden says, we have two jobs in healthcare. The first is to do our job that we're hired for, and the second is to improve our work. So I hope that everybody considers that today and. Um, happy to talk to anyone who wants to know more or learn more. Um, I appreciate it so much. This has been great information. Thank you so much for your time. All right, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.